Welcome to PodRocket, a web development podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. You can try it free at LogRocket.com. I'm Noel, and today we are joined by Bert Elder, founder and CTO of Deno, previously working on the Node.js core team, here to talk about serverless infrastructure. Welcome to the show, Bert. How's it going? Thank you for having me, Noel. It's really great to be here. I'm excited to chat. Let's just jump right in. As like one of the core contributors, someone who's been thinking about Node and just JavaScript as a language and runtime and piece of software that we are all using tons and tons day to day, why did you feel that there was it was time to make a departure and really think about Deno, especially now like kind of going into 2024, how it both evolved since you started working on both and how has that relationship changed? A very good question. I have worked on Node.js since the very early beginning, like 2010 or so, was responsible for the Windows port and that kind of stuff. And I took a bit of a hiatus afterwards doing another startup called Strongloop, which was really focused on building API servers. And coming back into, what was it, 2017, Ryan and I actually were working on building an AI framework and getting back into Node and and, and seeing what it had become. And I don't want to be a negative Nancy here. I think Node had been very successful and turned out to be extremely useful, much more than what it what we had ever dreamed of when we started this process. But there were also some things that we really didn't like. And in particular, we had noticed that the module system had gotten really unwieldy. If you were wanted to build anything like really basic, it would involve like NPM install and it would pull down like thousands of files and usually it'd take even minutes. And another thing that we noticed is that it was no longer the case that you would just do node my program.js. And that was how you would work on it, how you would debug it. Very often we saw that projects now required a complicated indirection, build systems, Babel and Webpack and what have you. And we we didn't think those trends were really that ideal. And part of that was was driven also by the growth of TypeScript. We really liked TypeScript. But of course, since Node.js doesn't run that directly, yeah, that does necessitate having some sort of build step, regardless of how simple you can make anything else. So those were really the, the, the three things we thought we could do much better. And then like on top of that, there were two, I would say, like annoyances that that bothered us. You don't need just Node and NPM. Like when we built a Node initially, initially, of course, it was just Node. And like pretty soon after we started shipping NPM with it, and that was essentially all the tools that were available that you would need Things hadn't come along also to do linting, to do code formatting, all very useful features or very useful tools. But as a new developer, you would have to know that the thing to do linting with is ESLint and the thing to do formatting with is prettier. And like, that's not necessarily obvious. If we compared that to like the experience of a new user starting with Go was, and Go has all this stuff built in. And so we said, why don't we just go ahead and build that into our runtime, into our toolkit, essentially. And I think the last thing that that we thought would be great is since the adoption of Node.js. So like in Node.js, like we invented a lot of new APIs. We invented an API to make HTTP requests and we invented an API to whatever, whatever, save files, etc. And of course, the the web API, Node.js runs JavaScript. It ultimately comes from the web world. Those APIs had evolved and grown and 
Like now there was like a standardized way to load HTTP files and there is whatever, a browser-ish standard way to load files and there are streaming standards, etc. And all those things hadn't really made it into Node.js at that point. And it seemed to us the obvious direction that this should go is that like, yeah, the APIs, when it makes sense, should be available everywhere instead of them being these separate worlds. So that's how we went into it in 2017. Your question is, how do you, how are you looking at all this in, in 2024? Yeah, seven years later. Yeah. Seven years later, yeah, it's crazy. So I'm, what I'm glad to see is that Node has adopted quite a few of our, of our good ideas. You know, it supports a standard fetch at this point. You can import modules from URLs, for example. That also works. It's even starting to build in some pretty obvious features that we had much earlier, like a built-in test runner, for example. Oh, and I should also mention our initial view that we could do a module system much better than TypeScript. I still believe that to a certain extent or that we have solved some of the problems, but unfortunately we have not really solved all of the problems. Like there, are, there are some things that NPM solves that doing really web standard URL imports, we didn't really address well. So that's something that in 2024, we are still attempting and you'll see some new blood in our efforts to like really make the module system a better experience. I think some of it's been achieved. I think the TypeScript integration on our end is still very relevant. Like in Node.js, there is no TypeScript support. There probably never will be. And I think what you see us do now that we didn't really think of in 2017 is something else, which is focus more on the development of cloud distributed system. You know, if you think about Node.js, they, it provides APIs that allow you to interact with a Unix-like operating system. It, it assumes files, it assumes that you can create sockets, etc. But these days, when you build applications, you probably don't build them for a server under your desk, right? They're supposed to be run in a cloud, auto scale, run, have instances maybe all across the globe. And that means that like the pieces that you use to build systems with are different. And we're talking about you need message queues, you need a database, you need some sort of file storage, you need caches and all those Primitives, yeah, you don't have them in, in Node.js, and we are working towards making them available in a very natural and like, user-friendly way in Dino that you can essentially, when you start writing your software, you can immediately start thinking about, okay, how does this work at a worldwide scale? I don't want to like overly focus on Node. I want to talk about Deno primarily, but I, I'm curious now, I guess, with that seven-year perspective, do you think that a lot of the problems that you felt at the time were the root there was just... I don't know if an un unwillingness is probably an overly strong term, but just Node's tendency to not change or adopt standards quickly enough with web, or do you think that would never have been possible with just how quickly Node achieved so much widespread usage that the cat was already out of the bag and those changes couldn't really be made at that point? You've seen them make changes that we pioneered, essentially. It's clearly possible that those changes make it into an open source project, but I think in an open source project, it tends to be difficult, especially as they become more mature, to have a clear direction of the project that is like a little bit an evolution of the, what the software is today. Because Node.js ultimately is mostly staffed by volunteers or by companies that contribute man hours to the project. But there isn't a leadership that says, okay, this, these are the trends in your, or this is the direction that we should go in. 
So yeah, I think that it's probably more like an open source governance problem than technical issue. Things can move slowly, but usually there's a good reason and we don't want to have breaking changes and all those things. I'm not trying to cast any stones or anything. I, I totally get it. What are you um, focusing on right now? Where are you spending your time with Dino? Where is your energy spent? Yeah, in Dino, I've had a lot of hats. You're we much smaller. I, I was really busy building with bindings for V8, the JavaScript runtime to Rust, etc. But these days, it's really, I'm focused a lot on Dino Deploy, which is our sort of edge hosting service. And in particular, I would say, Something maybe that we will talk about later, but it's something called subhosting, a new product, more or less, that we recently launched. Within that, I'm I'm really focused on like right now we need it needs to be more reliable. We know that for our customers, and we need to scale. Our volume is growing, and that provides challenges all the time. Let's frame this a little bit, especially for those that like aren't really in the ecosystem or haven't delved in. What is Dino Deploy? First of all, yeah. So Dino Deploy is a, a hosting service for JavaScript and TypeScript applications. It really works well if you already wrote your program in Dino to begin with. And essentially what it does is it links, we imagine that you will put your code on GitHub and what it will do is it will take, whenever you like make a push to your GitHub repo, it will take that code and deploy it globally on the edge instantaneously. We strive to do this like within seconds, essentially. And yeah, it's really like, serverless from your perspective to the max. You don't have to scale it. You don't have to decide where your server runs. You don't have to figure out how to get any files on there. We take care of all of that. And like instantaneously, any code change that you make is live. Yeah, that, that's what Dino Deploy does. How does Deploy differ from something like any of the node hosts where point them in a GitHub repo and do the deployment for me, other than that they may not be node. Is there anything else there or is it just a de facto host for Dino projects? Can you give me any examples of things that you have in mind here? No, I, I'm, I, I'm just thinking, you know, like Heroku's pointed at a, point us at a, a GitHub project and we'll deploy it. There are a few of those solutions out there. Like Heroku is an interesting one because it's pretty old at this point. And well, what Heroku does is they take the build step away from you, right? Like they will do like an NPM install on their end in their thing. And then they will start up, yeah, a dyno it's called in, in Heroku's case, I think that will run your code on demand essentially when a request comes. In many ways, I think you can see uh, Dino deploy as an iteration on that. We don't do any build steps. We designed so that most of the time you actually don't need that. We do this much faster and we, we don't spin up like any whatever 0.25 CPU container for you. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> run, we run a full isolate on demand, but only where it's needed and when it's needed. And, and so that's how we keep it efficient. You, you can also compare it, I think, to other, I think, traditionally static website hosting solutions such as Vercel and Netlify. And yet the difference there is that we are a dynamic first hosting platform. What you deploy is a server written in Node in, in JavaScript, and it serves whatever you want. In Vercel and Netlify, it's the other way around. It's a bundle of files, first and foremost. And nowadays, they all have some support for Edge and functions or, or cloud functions. I'm thinking of use cases where it's not necessarily a web app. Like I, I need to run a JavaScript app, like a Node application. Heroku supports that, but I think you could probably do that with Cloudflare if you really wanted to. But yeah, those other kind of like, we do all of the things like the Vercels and stuff are much more tied to that. We're going to make a lot of assumptions that you're running a web application. Yes. And to be honest, Deploy makes a lot of assumptions, maybe sometimes a little bit too many assumptions there too. Uh, 
it's really good for if you want to run an API or want to host a website. But I think that there are use cases that we initially didn't envision that require a little bit more flexibility on our end. And, and we are actually working on those. So I think recently you've seen us do that by adding a feature called the cron, which is essentially just scheduled tasks that you define also in your code that allow you to run periodic jobs instead of just responding to HTTP requests coming from the web. If you wanted like the difference between us and Cloudflare, I think Cloudflare is in conceptually pretty close to deploy. And in, in many ways, like we have the same philosophy, but there are also some big differences. Cloudflare is, is not really compatible with any Node APIs uh, out of the box or, or many web APIs. It has some of their own stuff. And you, in order to get your code on there, you need to run a build and bundle process. Like that's all stuff that we don't have and that's required for Cloudflare. So have, have we crossed the line at all into what sub-hosting is specifically here? Or are we still all just talking? Uh, this is all un unrelated to sub-hosting. Yeah. So oh, if cool. you want me to explain sub-hosting. Yeah, let's do it. So I'll give you a little bit of a backstory here. I was talking about Netlify just now, and they actually run their edge functions on the Dino infrastructure. They still take care of static file hosting, and they also send cloud functions to Lambda, and they have their own system for building popular web frameworks. But when an actual edge function is involved, it runs in our infrastructure. And we built this thing where essentially like they could send a whatever a request to us and then our system wouldn't know what it is. And it would I'll go ask Netlify, hey, what should I do with this? And then in response to that, it would send us back some code and we would run the code. So it sounds pretty complicated and involved. We also wrote some documentation about that. And uh, that's what kind of where it all started. We got a lot of people emailing us like, hey, I have a use case where I essentially need a hosted sandbox because I want to run some like untrusted user code. They wouldn't necessarily be like building websites or even running complete things, if you will, but they just needed some way of running code that didn't make sense to run in an iframe. They didn't want to run it in the browser for the end user, but they also didn't think it made sense to whatever, like before each of these chunk of codes, spin up a VM or create a, a container or any of that. And we ignored that for a long time. At some point, it just became too hard to ignore. And maybe I should give you some examples of what you know, people to do with it. Yeah, I'm thinking of code challenges, a quick one that jumped to mind. If I want to take a user's code and run it or something like that. But I'm sure you have an array that are better than that. Oh, yeah, I, that's actually, I, we haven't seen that one, but uh, yeah, that would be one that makes sense. If you have a code challenge and you want to see like, okay, well, does this actually print fizz and buzz at the right time? You, you need a way to validate that. Yeah, you know, subhosting <laughs> is your solution, but maybe a little bit more on the serious note. So imagine that you have a SaaS application where you can render dashboards. And so like your customers, they're going to come and they're going to be like, okay, this is great. I can get some tables from my database and plot a graph. But now it gets a little bit more complicated because the data is not quite in the right format and you need to like do some adaptation. So a lot of SaaS apps want to provide this escape hatch. So if you need to, then you can write a snippet of code that transforms the data and hammers it in the right shape. And then we will deal with it further. Adding a code editor to a website these days is not really that hard. You can take Code Mirror or Monaco and slap it on your website and that's pretty much done. But then like actually running that code in a secure way where know that it's not going to access any internal services or access data from your neighbor user or you just spin and eat up your CPU forever. Yeah. Gets turned into a crypto mining thing or something. That's something that everybody is rightfully so very concerned about. And 
And that's something that we, exactly that, we have built for our edge hosting server. So it makes total sense to say, okay, yeah, no, we can help there. We didn't expect this, but there are many use cases for this. When you think about CRM, everybody knows Salesforce. I think not everybody knows that if you add a button to Salesforce, you can customize what a Salesforce server does if you click on that. You just have to learn this programming language called the Apex, and you can customize it. And so they developed their own sandboxing solutions and their own programming language for this. This is not something that as a startup you really want to get into, right? And that's it's really hard. Or... Think about Slack, for example. You can have Slack bots. Now, Slack bots actually can, they can talk to other services and they can do essentially do anything and they can provide some UI components in the Slack API. If you're Slack, how do you build that in a way that every of your customers is separated from one another and like those things don't misbehave? Uh, Slack, by the way, does use Dino. They don't use Dino sub-hosting because their, this functionality is comfortably predates our offering. But uh, Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> someday. You never know. Yeah, who knows? I remain hopeful. So I think there are like there are just all these use cases. Nowadays we see a lot of like people that build AI bots and they, they're like, oh well, you know, I'm talking to OpenAI and OpenAI tells me to run this code. How do I run that code? Yeah, there are really infinite number of use cases here. One that I would want to point out is we have a big customer, which is called DecoCX, and Deco, it's really big in Brazil, so I think maybe a lot of your audience doesn't know about it. They build sort of a WYSIWYG editor for like headless storefronts, storefronts for headless uh, e-commerce systems. And so a lot of it's click and uh, whatever drag, but yeah, sometimes people need to do custom things and they can do that really easily with deploy. These use cases is really what I am nowadays focused on uh, making super nice. Are there other players in this space? This is a bit of a gap in my knowledge because a company could sit out and spin something up themselves like you kind of alluded to before. But I have to imagine that this is enough of a common problem or like other players are trying to do this. Were you guys able to look at anybody else or assessing out the market at all when you set out with subhosting? So to my knowledge, nothing really exists that specifically solves this problem. Like you see, I think the closest would be maybe Cloudflare for platforms, which, you know, works a bit differently, but you could probably use it in a similar way. It's not marketed as such, right? But it definitely could help here. You would have to do a little bit more work on your own, I think, because in Cloudflare, again, like you have to build and bundle everything. And so it just puts extra work on your shoulders if you're trying to integrate this into your SaaS product. And what we see also is that, yeah, if people can't work it out with Deploy, then they, they tend to use Lambda and like handle something. That was my next question. Yeah. Like I think Lambda is, it's a great escape hatch for basically any of these kind of like problems. But yeah, that puts like a lot of more work on you because now you, you have to Make sure to schedule those things per tenant and like get code on there and figure out how to get the logs back to your customer. And yeah, it's a lot more work. It doesn't necessarily provide a great deal of like isolation out of the box between you and the rest of your system. Of course, between other AWS customers, the isolation. Yeah, I think the same argument could be made against like any of these Lambda likes Google's cloud functions or whatever Microsoft's is called, or like Cloudflare or on the worker side, like you could come up with something where you're like, okay, we'll spin up an isolated worker every time they try to do this. And then we'll route the request to that specifically. I don't know, the abstractions just aren't really in the right places. And maybe this is like a problem more in the like, how projects are actually structured in these cloud hosts. And that is where the difficulty comes into play. 
Um, you kind of mentioned security and isolation a couple times. Is there any other big concerns that people may not account for if they like set out to do this themselves or things you guys have learned as you've <laughs> begun doing this? Yeah, I think really security in its broadest sense is usually in top of mind of people. And I, what I include in security here is a little bit like the risk of a runaway process. It's not technically a security issue, but yeah, if a customer of yours has like a bug and the, their custom backend connector uses 100% CPU and 10 gigs of memory and all your other tenants are suffering because of this, so that's not ideal. So what we had already built for website hosting purposes is mitigations for that. Yeah, we keep your memory under control and that includes in like kicking the garbage collector into high gear if it's necessary. And we make sure that if your event loop blocks for more than a couple seconds, like we in, intervene, etc. So yeah, that's probably the biggest concern. The other thing is, I think, just ease of doing updates to code, getting code into the system, etc. So that's another one. Last but not least, I don't forget the functionality of it too. What we hear from people is they're mostly concerned about security, but then they think about what it would take to build it all for themselves. They were like, I need to load modules and you know, whatever, cache them and you make sure that those things are updated whenever necessary. And this was a little bit earlier, but okay, I don't really want to build my own virtual file system, but I also don't want people to have access to slash ETC slash password or whatever. So once they start sort of exploring all the ingredients that would go into an actual system that works, it tends to worry them a lot. That's a- that does kind of beg the question, are there certain limits that need to be considered for someone setting out to start using subhosting? Because yeah, we can't just spit any JavaScript TypeScript code up and let it run, like you said, interact with the file system arbitrarily. Like, are there any common, I don't know, just like little pitfalls where, oh, we just can't really do that. Or if you're going to do this kind of thing in subhosting, like you need to handle it this way. Honestly, this product's pretty early. There are plenty of cases like that. I think that the biggest thing that people run into right now is we have a pretty hard limit on like how much CPU you can use per request. We say per request, it's hard to measure actual CPU to use per request, right? Some approximation of that. They want to, whatever, do process gigabytes of data that you get into trouble or you want to resize images or do something with video. I think that's usually yeah where it gets really difficult for people to use subhosting. And I, there is another thing, which is something that we are working on, but haven't really figured out. Like right now, and that's really spilled over from how Dino deploy for websites essentially was built, is we present to you this abstraction where you deploy code, we build it, we make a snapshot of your dependency tree essentially, and that becomes then like a website. It becomes accessible through a URL. And then when you actually send a request to the URL, we're going to start it up and it, your code runs. And this works for very many cases just fine. If you write like a custom adapter to another database, that works great. But there are cases where either you just, you, you want a lot more control over like when this thing start, starts up, that's one. And there are also other cases where you are not so interested in like having a snapshot of a bundle run, but you want it to be much more dynamic. You want to be like, okay, maybe I need to load some plugins into my sub hosting, you know? Yeah. Conditionally. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's difficult because we we expect that like everything that we're going to run that we already know about once you create it. So those are two areas where we are actively working on like improving what it can do. 
And then I think a third thing, which you can very well work around currently, but it's just maybe not the most convenient, is you know, if you need to integrate with a service, let's say you write some custom renderer for some data that comes out of the SaaS provider system. You have a code editor in some SaaS product and the SaaS product also has data and the data needs to get to the deployment somehow. So you somehow this deployment needs to call an API and get data back and it needs to authenticate itself to do that. Like right now you would all have to like manually wire that up and we think we can make that a lot easier. Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one. I feel like I've encountered this before where it's like during the... I don't know what's called other than like the build step. One needs to go out and do something with a service. Like I need to authenticate with GitHub and pull like the most recent changes from a thing and then compare that to do my deployment here. I think that is a problem that keeps manifesting in all these little weird ways. And where it's like, I need non-contextual data pulling at this step before my actual code environment is running. Like I could totally see why that would be a challenge. But you stumbled into one of my next questions here. And that was in configuration. So is there, is there are there many knobs that can be turned on sub hosting right now? Are there many options on, I don't know, memory limits or how long to like kill a process that might be run away or you've gotten pretty honed in on that and you're trying to alleviate that concern just naturally from customers? The answer is both. The limits that we currently set, we didn't just make them up. They were yeah, this way, because we want most of the websites that are run on our system or most functions to work without issue. That said, so yeah, many knobs are currently not available, but we are adding more of them. And so it requires work on our end, though, to make sure that we can actually honor them. If you give you a knob to use to, currently you get half a gig of memory. If we give you, we can give you also eight gigs of memory, but if we do that to one person, it's probably fine. But if everybody starts using that all of a sudden, then our schedulers and auto scalers and stuff go over. So we are working on like improving our placement logic and then we will actually make those things available. So the answer is you don't really have many knobs. You can set environment variables, you can attach databases, and that's pretty much it <laughs> at the moment. What we think we can do in the future is in the memory, the maximum time that you're allowed to block the event loop, how long the thing stays online after it's idle, like all those things in the limit will be available for customization. Yeah, I get it. I think that sometimes it can be too much having all these knobs out of the gate sometimes. And we're like, are we focusing on the right thing? So I think it's totally sensible. Let's see if we can just make assumptions for everyone and like how well that works. And if we handle 99% of cases that way, we're probably doing all right. Yeah. At the end of the day, also, like you, you don't want to force people to make many choices, right? We have really been focused on, in particular, I would say for the non-sub hosting platform, for the hosting platform to just provide defaults that work for everyone. But I think for sub-hosting, we see that the use case are a little bit more diverse. And so that's why we also want to provide a little bit more flexibility. That's always an interesting one to see how organizations are like thinking about that level, like how much customization to expose to the customers. And I think it's particularly interesting, yeah, like in something like sub-hosting where it's like, there's two layers of abstraction here, a running code on behalf of someone who is probably running code on behalf of someone else. Ah, like I don't, I don't even know who should be in charge of dialing that knob? It's a, a scary prospect. Yeah, there's another angle too. We don't really have a very good answer to now, but in employee, of course, you get billed at the end of the day for how much requests you you process and how much like egress you do. But and what the sub-hoster, of course, wants is that they want to impose some limits on their individual tenants, not to be like it's imposed on, on them as a whole. That doesn't really do much. We, that's currently also not available. So the they would have to do some explicit work to say, okay, these guys are, they can tell how much resources the, their tenants are using. So that's the first step. But 
they would have to like actively disable them. And I think it makes total sense for us to make that to be able to set limits on specific deployments instead of on organizations. Do you guys think about that problem a lot? I'm totally off the outline here, but are you thinking about the correct way to draw that abstraction of letting people build their own little mini cloud host? Like what should and shouldn't they have to think about? What should they be managing? Yes, we are thinking about it all the time. I have to be honest here, designing new APIs, like things will usually become really obvious in hindsight, but we are looking at something that doesn't really exist or nobody else has done. And it's often not so obvious. I'll give you an exception. Maybe I, I alluded to this earlier. If you make a deployment, if you send code to us, we can create like an immutable snapshot right now. And like for a long time, that made total sense to us because we were building, deploying Git to turning Git commits essentially into websites and Git, Git commits are immutable. So to your deployment to be immutable. And like now we don't know if this is like so obvious anymore. And maybe we maybe have to rethink this whole thing. But I'm pretty sure that like five years down the line, Git will be, you know, so many of the Concepts in Git itself, for example, have over the years just solidified. Now people understand what they are and uh, they, they make sense. They seem to make sense in hindsight. But it, if you, when you're still in the design process, I think it's hard. No, yeah, yeah. I think like what abstractions does the system make and can we make just the right amount without making any more than that? Because then like you get into over configurability and like just becomes a difficult to use and all that stuff. And yeah, I think Git walks that line very well where you can get your feet wet and figure things out without getting too far down. But then once you start to need to reach for the specialized like wrenches and weird stuff, you can usually find it and piece it together. But that is a, a tricky task. So it's a tricky problem space to be thinking in of what are the correct levels of abstraction here? Yeah. And I think it's knobs is usually not like the biggest issue. It's okay. Do you have yeah classes or entities of things? So like in Git, you have commits, trees, maybe if you will, blobs, branches, and tags. I mean, that's basically it. It's pretty cozy and tight. And so Dino Deploy is completely un unrelated to that, of course, but we have projects and KV databases and domains and deployments. And that's Already, like we've gone through shifts previously, databases would be under projects and now they are a top level thing. And like domains would be under projects and now they are a top level thing. And like every time we add features to it, we run a risk that we like essentially, in order to solve a concrete problem, add five more resources to it. Double the number of classes in your abstraction model. That is a really risky thing to do. In fact, this segues me beautifully. So we keep talking about like these kind of primitives that are provided because they're good key value or access to a database. It seems like we're settling on these things that we're all understanding are the tools that we'll need in a web app, like largely universally, like this, a lot of apps need these things. They seem to generally be pretty heavily relied on. Do you think that is a trend? Like we've hit the, these are probably the five or six things that most apps are going to need. And do you think it's kind of like, oh, it's safe to make these abstractions now because we've probably solidified a little bit? I think for some, they are, they're becoming really clear and for some, they are not. So what's really clear is that applications need some way of running dynamic code, they're like very obvious. They need a way to serve files fast, CDN essentially. They need some sort of like blob storage, think Google Cloud Storage or S3 or something like that, a message queue. Message queues have different features, but they tend to be pretty uniform and they need some sort of form of caching and caching is something that deploy currently doesn't have, but like we, we know we need it. Then we also know that more applications need some sort of backend database. 
And the only problem here is that like for the backend databases have very diverse use cases and very diverse performance characteristics and whatever consistency behavior. And so it's really difficult to imagine that we will settle down on one abstraction for databases that will like really serve everyone. For a while, it was believed that maybe a NoSQL, it could be that. So I'm thinking like MongoDB or something. In like a recent resurgence of the popularity of SQLite that I think nowadays not many people agree with this. So yeah, I think that data structured data storage, I think there's not going to be very many abstractions that like work for everyone. But yeah, but again, like for S3 blob storage, that's pretty obvious. Like everybody needs that and it can all be, work more or less the same. The key value queues... Are there any other big ones you guys are thinking of? Value is an interesting one. We half a year ago like launched DKV, which I mean I think is great. DKV <laughs> like is it has a, a great consistency model. It, it's either fully consistent or slightly stale, but fast. You can do atomic operations against it. But I think that you see still people like approach it in very different ways. Cloudflare has a very different thing. Vercel has it built on top of Upstash, which is really Redis. And so I here I'm gonna. Pat myself on the back here. Dino KV is really the best solution that's out there, but I don't know necessarily that it will be the thing that everybody needs exactly. <laughs> but I think it's, it is definitely like very flexible. Who knows? Do you think at large we're like heading towards more standardization, or do you think this like it's going to keep being weird? Stuff's going to keep changing. We're going to have varying needs based on the web app in particular. I, I think in some areas we we will see standardization. Would say almost in the areas that seem a little bit more boring. Let me think, for example, cache would be a good example. And what I'm talking about here is like a cache API. You're running JavaScript on a server and you are minifying some CSS. You don't want to keep doing that over and over again. And so you want to like stash away the result in a place that is not necessarily globally consistent or doesn't necessarily need to be durable, but it needs to be fast. So you can like quickly do a cache lookup and or get a cache miss and so what many have done is say, okay, the web has a cache API. It's built for browsers, so it makes assumptions that like you can do essentially synchronous lookups because it's never a distributed system. But like adaptations to that API yeah, work pretty well in, in edge or serverless environment. However, it's not standardized. There's this working group called WinterCG, which has us in it and Netlify and Cloudflare and Vercel. And so we... There's actually the, the effort to standardize APIs that are a little bit obvious and you know, focused on, on serverless is happening there. And cache is like one where I, I would expect to see some progress. And a little bit further down the line, I think things like queues could see synchronization, maybe an API to interact with blob storage. I'm saying that because S3 is so popular that all the other cloud stores have essentially implemented the S3 HTTP APIs already for themselves. They offer the same functionality. So you can also see how runtime APIs can be standardized for that. Yeah. Yeah, again, KV. It's trickier. It's trickier, yes. Mm -hmm. Fetching data from, like, I don't know. I don't feel like there's a ton of decisions there. It's fairly intuitive, I guess, as a user, how you'd expect this to happen. But like something like key value, especially uh, replication and concurrency and like competing rights and all that stuff, there's all these other 
concerns that quickly kind of surface to the top. So what are you guys thinking about right now? What's on the horizon for sub-hosting in particular? And then just like at large? I think I mentioned many of them already. Maybe I should list them out. One thing I didn't mention, I think for sub-hosting is if you put like a code editor in your SaaS, you probably want to make some, want to customize the sandbox a little bit. You you want to make some functions available that are very specific to your use case. You, You can do that currently. Just by if you upload the user's code, add some more code of your own, right? That's a, that's a way to do it. Monkey patch everything, making that easier, giving you a way to like actually upgrade your SDK without touching the user code, all that stuff. We are working on this, working on lifting some of the restrictions on, in particular, on, on how much compute you can use, having an easier way to integrate, to authenticate to third-party services. I think those are like the biggest ones that we are currently tracking. And I think as for Dino as a whole, yeah, we are taking another step of the module system. So we are essentially building yet another module registry, big focus on TypeScript that will be really nice. And it solves many of the problems with our earlier attempts, such as it's hard to whatever, deduplicate if you have import modules that only differ in like a patch version number, etc. So that, yeah, that's coming too. We'll call it Dino 2.0 and release it. Anything else? Anything you want to point listeners towards or just implore people to check out? Yeah, I would implore them to like download Dino. And I think many people might have already done that. And Dino has always been great, of course, but like nowadays it's really great. And we have great, also pretty good node modules or NPM module support nowadays. So probably your stuff will just work if you have already have something. Yeah, fun, fun weekend project, if nothing else. Give stuff a shot. Play with the new toys. Yeah, exactly. And then like on Monday at work. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Cool. Thank you uh, for coming online and chatting with me, Bert. It's been a pleasure. This was great. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for having me again. Yeah.